we're glad that you're here at Faith Covenant Church this morning. If we haven't had the opportunity to meet, my name is Eric. I get to serve as the youth pastor here uh, at church. Uh, And we're glad that you're here with us live or online, or if you're dialing in a little bit later because you're taking the opportunity to sleep in, that's fine. I wish I could do that too, but I'll do that tomorrow. Uh, And uh, of course, if you happen to experience a little bit of that room, no room at the inn experience uh, and showed up for the 1115 service only to find the doors locked, we hope that you're tuning in uh, via your cell phone in the church parking lot this morning. Uh, Either way, however it is that you're joining us, we are glad that you are here with us. Now, if you've been with us through this Advent season, we've been doing this series called The Carols of Christmas, where we've been taking a look at some of these uh, common popular Christmas carols uh, and kind of stripping away the music to take a look at what the lyrics can teach us, what message that they have for us, and to kind of think about them anew this Christmas season. Uh, And we've had some, some good carols that have been covered. Uh, and uh, when Pastor Mike and I were talking about what I might preach about this Sunday, uh, it was, you know, I could tag along on this Carols of Christmas. I could do something standalone before this new series that starts next week. Uh, and I was thinking about it. So we've, we've done O Come, Emmanuel. We've done O Come, All Ye Faithful, Silent Night, What Child Is This on Christmas Eve. But Pastor Mike left my favorite one off the list. And I just, I just felt that that injustice could not be tolerated. <laughs> So, uh, my favorite Christmas carol growing up uh, was the one we just heard, Go Tell It on the Mountain. And I I don't know exactly what it was uh, that made it my favorite, uh, that I latched onto it as a a young kid so much. Uh, It was probably because it was was a little more more upbeat and preppy. I didn't quite get to hear the country western variation that we just heard uh, this morning growing up in the churches, but I enjoyed it. Hank, thank you so much. Um, it's definitely not like a, a dark minor key like O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. It's not like the Christmas lullaby like Away in the Manger or Silent Night. Uh, and while it's not the only Christmas carol that comes with a chorus or refrain, it's one that falls into this well-known category that starts and ends with the chorus. Now, if you want proof that this was my favorite Christmas carol growing up, all you have to do is talk to my family. Now, I grew up as a pastor's kid. My dad was the pastor at the churches that I grew up at. And oftentimes, on Sundays where we would have five Sundays in a month, on that fifth Sunday, my dad oftentimes would facilitate something called hymn favorites. Uh, And we had a more traditional church setting, uh, but people would grab their hymnals, call out the number of their favorite hymn, uh, and then the the pianist or the organist would, would flip it open and we would sing it together. Now, usually my dad would limit it to one or two uh, verses, um, usually two, maybe three, depending on what the, what the hymn was, so that it didn't go on too long. It gave more people an opportunity to participate. It also probably kept some of us unruly teens from, like, finding the longest uh, hymn in the hymnal and calling that one out. Now, if you were thinking about that for Christmas, you would probably pick the first Noel, because that has six verses uh, and would probably take a while. Uh, speaking of getting into trouble, my... I never did this, but my sister and her friends, once upon a time, they called out either a hymn that had already happened in the service, or one that, like, was going to be after my dad's sermon, uh, to kind of, like, wrap up and tie in the theme of the sermon, Uh, and of course, my dad wouldn't catch it until we opened up the the hymn, and the hymn started playing, and then he would glare at my sister a little bit, or one time, uh, my sister and uh, her friend, they called out, we had this response after scripture reading that we would always sing, uh, and they called out that hymn number. Um, 
uh, and, uh, and of course, nobody knew what the hymn number was because we had it memorized, and then he'd open it up and he'd be like, we just sang this. But that was only one verse, which was nice. Uh, I do know a couple of times I did just like shout out a random number, not knowing what it was, and then nobody knew that hymn, and we all had to like struggle through it awkwardly together. Uh, but when I was younger, more often than not, I would shout out 188, which in the blue hymnal was Go Tell It on the Mountain. Or in the red hymnal, if, you're, if you've been with uh, Covenant Church for a long time, you might remember the red hymnal. It was 135 uh, in the red hymnal. Uh, and we would sing Go Tell It on the Mountain. It didn't matter if it was January or July. Uh, more often than not, Go Tell It would make it in the mix. And I mean, how could you say no to this face right here? And on, just for the record, I was playing spy in this picture. I needed quick access to, like, tie changes for disguise changes. Uh, they were all clip-on ties, just explaining the chaos that was there uh, a little bit. But in the spirit of the series, we've been working through, again, kind of stripping away the music, taking a look at the lyrics. What is the message behind this? What can it teach us? Uh, so when we think about Go Tell It on the Mountain, what comes to mind? What's it about? We think, ah, oh, it's Christmas, right? Or it's Jesus, and both of those are pretty safe answers, right? It's a, it's a Christmas carol, like uh, Jesus is that, that default Sunday school answer when we're not quite sure what the teacher's looking for. It's like Jesus, Bible, pray, or church, right? Those are our default answers. Uh, and that's true, they are pretty good default answers. They fit Christmas and Jesus. But I think the theme beyond these obvious answers, when we dig a little bit deeper, uh, and, you know, because of whether it's the season or, you know, just the default answer of Jesus, uh, I think that theme is evangelism, telling people about Jesus. It's pretty obvious. It's pretty clear. It's right there in the title of the carol. It's right there in the first line that we sing together, that proclamation to go tell, uh, that command to go out and make it known. And yet, I don't know about you, but at least for me, I think that idea oftentimes when I first think about it makes me a little uncomfortable. It makes me a little squeamish. That idea of go tell it on the mountain. Put yourself in an elevated position where you can be seen and heard uh, and, and share uh, a message uh, to people and proclaim it out to anybody that will listen. Now, more often than not, when I first think of evangelism, that gut reaction leads me to the traditional soapbox preacher. Um, and, uh, you know, preaching on the street corner, the end is near, repent sinners uh, sort of message. And really almost more uh, of... Uh, an annoyance or an inconvenience for those passing by. Very, like, seldomly do you have people who are engaged with that person uh, for a long time. Uh, and I know, uh, again, like, you, you tend to be annoyed if you're, you're passing by that individual. And to think about being the one on that soapbox uh, in that traditional sense of proclaiming out uh, probably makes us all a little bit uncomfortable. Uh, let alone, I know some of you uh, would definitely not be willing to switch me places to come and stand up here and proclaim out to you guys. And you guys all chose to be here this morning, right? Uh, versus by trying to get anybody's attention and passing by. So that, that's, that's just from the title here, right? Go tell it on the mountain. The first line of the song, a little uncomfortable thinking about evangelism. Uh, but I, I, the rest of the titles, go tell it on the mountain. And I think if we think about it, if we think about a mountain, we kind of, we understand uh, why that is. It makes sense. Uh, there's something majestic about mountains. There's significance to mountains. Uh, they have their place. And while they have their place of significance, I just want you to hold this thought in the back of your head that also they're not the be-all, end-all of everything. 
Uh, but first, a, a couple examples of what this significance looks like. If we look in the Old Testament, we find that mountains oftentimes served uh, as a place of encountering God. We have way back in Genesis chapter 22, Abraham, after falling short of having strong faith in God, finally follows through uh, in his experience with Isaac uh, and going to sacrifice Isaac and God um, showing, okay, now you have show that you've been faithful, not holding anything back from me. That happens on a mountain in Genesis chapter 22. If we flip forward a few pages to the book of Exodus, in Exodus chapter 3, we have Moses and the burning bush. That happened on a mountain. Flip forward a few more pages, a little bit further in Moses' story, we get the Ten Commandments. Uh, Moses gets those on the mountain in Exodus chapters 19 and 20. It was Mount Carmel where Elijah had that big showdown with all the prophets of Baal, and then, you know, they had him pour water on it, and it was all gone. Uh, And then the next chapter in 1 Kings 19, where after receiving death threats from Queen Jezebel, Elijah runs away, but then encounters God uh, in the sheer silence on the mountain. Uh, They have a place of significance of encountering God. Uh, From a practical sense, when we think about mountains, proclaiming from a mountaintop, it makes sense, right? That elevated position to be seen and to be able to project out for all to hear. Uh, It makes physical sense. And we can see that in things even today, right? If we think about a lighthouse, while it's on sea level, they usually try and put it on an elevated position as best they can. And then they even elevate the light some more in the way that they build the building uh, as a visible communication to sailors and ships of dangers that might lie ahead or where land is. Uh, that sort of thing. Or maybe uh, a more even contextual example for us being here uh, in Michigan, while we still got lighthouses on the Great Lakes, would be a cell tower, right? Pretty prevalent for us today to have good cell service so we can tune into the live stream, because why else would you use your data service on your phone? Um, the, the higher up you can get the cell tower on the clear signal un- un- unobstructed, uh, from your cell, cellular device, the better reception that you'll have. I actually know of one of, uh, I remember hearing a story, one of our sister churches in Chicago worked out a deal with a cellular service provider to put a cell tower in their steeple because uh, their steeple was the, one of the highest structures around and a, a church steeple is a bit more sightly than an unsightly dedicated cell tower. Uh, It's also part of the reason, this elevated position idea, it's part of the reason why ancient cities were built on hills. For a couple of things, it kind of stood as a symbol of power, right? Uh, It's something that you could see that stood out uh, on the land as a landmark. Uh, Having the high ground was a defensive advantage, uh, gave the city a better defensive position. And if you don't believe me about that, just ask Anakin about how that went with (laughs) Obi-Wan in Revenge of the Sith. Uh, And of course, because you had this defensive advantage in having the high ground, it also became a place of safety. So we we recognize and understand uh, from a practical sense this idea of of mountain. Uh, We also describe moments of significant spiritual experience as mountaintop experiences. Now, in my time working at camp, uh, we talked about this a lot, and uh, so much so it almost became kind of the goal. We always strive to help campers have a mountaintop experience, a mountaintop encounter with God, a big uh, spiritual significant, spiritually significant experience in their time at camp that would be memorable uh, and help kind of feed them forward with some excitement as they left. Uh, and many times uh, it meant uh, that through witnessing God use us as a conduit to work through these kids, oftentimes made those experiences that were mountaintop experiences for the kids 
mountaintop experiences for us as well. And so for a while, like, there were a group of us on staff, like, that was our main, it was like, we got to get this mountaintop experience. We got to get this mountaintop experience. And I remember, eventually, somebody kind of helped shift my perspective on this a little bit. Uh, when they said, you know, if you, if you look at this picture of this guy on the pinnacle of this mountain, if you look around at the mountaintops that he's looking at, there's not a lot of life up on these highest mountaintops. Uh, if you want life, you've got to go down into the valley, below the tree line where you start to see trees and rivers, uh, and life take place. Life happens in the valleys. Not that mountaintops don't have their place. Uh, and I think it's the same for us. If you stay on the mountaintop, uh, it's good to be there for a little bit, but it's something that isn't sustainable. And we think, when we think about those Old Testament characters that I mentioned earlier, Elijah, Moses, um, Abraham, and others, uh, if, you, if, you take away, if you only keep the mountaintop experiences, we lose out on a number of other stories that they were involved in. Now, even if we think of mountains as this primary place to proclaim, uh, I, I would say it's not something that's sustainable long term. Uh, think about it. Even going to cheer on your favorite sports team just for the three and a half hours that the Lions are on, if you haven't completely given up on the Lions yet and you're still cheering for them, uh, if you're at that point, I'd recommend the Packers. Uh, but just going on to cheer your favorite sports team, it's not sustainable. Eventually, you're going to end up losing your voice just within that time frame of the game. You're going to end up sounding like that character from Monsters, Inc. I can't talk anymore. I got my eye on you, Wazowski. Right? Uh, and, and maybe I've just heard some sighs of relief a little bit, right? Okay, so Eric, you're saying we don't have to, like, be these big, loud proclaimers. Uh, we don't have to go up on the mountaintop or be on the soapbox. Uh, don't hear me wrong. Just because it's, it's not sustainable doesn't mean that there isn't a time and a place for that. Uh, and the good news is oftentimes, I think, I believe that those times and places happen more naturally, right? You think uh, about your favorite sports team. You're not going to go gung-ho cheering about your sports team when they're not playing a game, right? You're, you're cheering for the Lions only for those three and a half hours that the football game is on. You're not cheering for them three and a half hours every day of the week. Uh, and only for 16 weeks in the season because we know that the Lions don't make the playoffs. Um, uh, and so... Uh, um, so yeah, so you, you have these times and places uh, that arise more naturally where we find the experience to proclaim. And the other good news is, while we might often default to thinking as the mountain is this primary place to proclaim and spread the gospel, it isn't the only way, and I would also say that it isn't always the best way. Okay, so enough about mountains. Mountains have their place. They have their significance. Uh, and like I said earlier, but it's, it's, they're not the be-all, end-all. Uh, and I would say that that's not really what this song is about, even though it's in the title and even though it's in the first line of the song. Uh, it might be easy to forget that it's not just about mountains. Uh, the course, and the course doesn't just tell us about mountains. It says, uh, go tell it on the mountains over the hills and everywhere, which of course means everywhere, and in many ways paralyzed uh, parallels the final command that Jesus gave his disciples in Acts chapter 1 verse 8 where he says you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you will be my witnesses telling people about me everywhere in Jerusalem throughout Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth and what is this experience witnessed that takes place in the song well it happens right at the end of the chorus it reminds us what it's all about that Jesus Christ is born 
Now, you might be thinking, do I have to do that? I, I, wasn't, I didn't experience it firsthand, so I didn't witness it. And of course, if you did, fill us in on your anti-aging secret here. Um, but this song it reminds us what our message is. Uh, that Jesus is born, even though we weren't there firsthand to experience it. Uh, and it gives us a how uh, in the chorus, but only really if we like focus on the mountains, uh, like I said. And I think we miss out on kind of a Paul Harvey moment, the rest of the story, uh, where really the end of the chorus ties us into the story in the verses. We're reminded of a story that might challenge our perspective on questions of who is capable of carrying this message. Um, and as we dig into this story, uh, hopefully we realize that the how that we find isn't just that gut reaction soapbox preacher uh, that we might tie to evangelism. Now, when we look at the verses of this Christmas carol, we have uh, the story of the shepherds found in Luke 2. Uh, and oftentimes, putting something to tune can help us remember it better. Uh, and help us remember the story better. Of course, uh, once upon a time when I was leading worship at camp, it helps if you remember the, the actual lyrics, and there was a time where I melded verse 2 of Pharaoh, Pharaoh, and verse 3 of Pharaoh, Pharaoh, and ended up singing that all of God's people did the dead man's float. And of course, we know that's not how that story goes. But it sparked, I, I caught it because I was like, wait a second, that's not how it goes. Uh, oftentimes, putting things to tune can help us remember them better. Uh, and so we see that here in the story of the shepherds. If we can remember this, we can remember their story. Uh, and a quick summary. In verse 1, we have the shepherds just doing their thing, minding their business, tending their sheep, and then, boom, something unexpected happens. Uh, and then we go back to the chorus. In verse 2, uh, we get kind of what their immediate reaction is. These angels show up, and they tell them a message, and they say, do not be afraid, which if we take a look at the stories of Mary and Joseph and many other people who had encounters with angels in the Bible. Um, the angels apparently are not the cute little babies in the diapers with the wings on the clouds because very more often than not, they have to say, do not be afraid. Uh, and we get that here. Uh, and so, uh, but all of them, uh, Mary, Joseph, and the shepherds, they received the news and all followed in, in obedience to this news that they received which we get in verse 3. They go and they find Jesus just as the angels had told them. Uh, find In Luke chapter 2, verse 12, it says, And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. And then at the end of verse 3, we get uh, kind of that Paul Harvey moment, uh, rest of the story, about the, the bigger meaning of Jesus' arrival. Uh, but the angels uh, did tell them about this when we look at the actual story in Luke 2. In verse 11, they say, The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. Now, as I, as I think about this story of the shepherds, one of the questions that comes to mind is, if, if, if Jesus was such a big deal, why go to shepherds? I mean, think about it. They were uh, nothing really special or significant about these shepherds. Uh, they don't have... Uh, any distinct family lineage that we're told of. Um, they aren't even named, which oftentimes people of relevance in stories oftentimes get a name. Well, they don't have names, uh, so they don't seem that relevant. Uh, it could be maybe they were the only ones awake at this hour that would listen to the angels, but for something as big as the news of the coming of Jesus, you think the angels could probably wake somebody else up uh, who had a little more social clout to be like, hey, Jesus is, is here. 
so I think for me, the question is like shepherds for somebody as big as Jesus, as big as Jesus, does that really make sense? Uh, and especially if, if you've ever had, have had any experience with farm animals, you know they're not pretty. Now, my mom's dad was born and raised on a farm outside of Rockford, Illinois. And growing up every year in August, uh, Grandpa would take us to the Boone County Fair. Oftentimes, we would run into people that he knew growing up. I think it was a way for him to connect uh, with some of his friends from back home. But I also think it served as a way for Grandpa to kind of connect his grandkids to some of his experiences growing up. And while I was always a bit more excited about some of the rides at the fair, uh, some of them were a little more intimidating than others, uh, or doing the, uh, the dunk tank that the local police department would put on, uh, we still always managed to walk through all of the livestock uh, yards, take a look at the cows, take a look at the sheep, uh, goats, uh, chickens, horses, everything. And as you'd walk through that, uh, man, I, it would smell, and especially on a hot August day. Uh, growing up in western Illinois, if the wind blew just right, even in the town of Galesburg, uh, you could smell that we were in farm country. And I think for most of us here in this room who didn't grow up in that experience, we'd probably turn our noses up or look for the air freshener or like close the windows on the car. But if you talk to a, a, a farmer, that smell rolls in and they say, smells like money. And, uh, um, and if you think these shepherds, they were probably living with their sheep 24 hours a day, seven days a week. They probably smelled more like the sheep that they were hanging out with than the people that they were. Um, and, and shepherds, they were pretty normal Joes. Like I said, there was nothing special about them. They weren't educated. Uh, they didn't have all the answers. And probably like some farmers that we might run into today, they were probably a little rough around the edges. But then again, so were the disciples that we read about later. Yet it was these shepherds were the ones that the angels appeared to. It was these guys uh, were the ones that obeyed, and they were the ones that witnessed Jesus, just as the angels described to them. And it was these shepherds that kind of became like the first evangelists, right? Despite all these things that by our standards would probably uh, disqualify them for being the ones that we would want to bring forth our news uh, uh, of our birth announcement, uh, they were the ones that God used. We read in Luke chapter 2, verses 17, 18, and 20. After seeing him, the shepherds told everyone what had happened and what the angel had said to them about this child. All who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. The shepherds went back to their flocks, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen. Now, we look at these verses of the shepherd's story uh, that we have recorded, and, and maybe you get a slightly different impression uh, than our gut reaction might do, or one that I had as I look at these again, is that it's, it's not as complicated as we make it out to be, as we think it is sometimes. All they did was share what they had experienced God doing in and around their lives. Now, obviously, what these guys experienced, it was a pretty big moment. It was a mountaintop moment. It was something that you would probably, with that level of excitement that you would want to claim, uh, proclaim from the top of the mountain. Uh, and do the work to climb up to the top of the mountain, right? And we maybe initially see them doing this in the way that it describes them going back, glorifying and praising God. And I can picture an extra bounce in their step of excitement as they went. Uh, and it might be a bit more of that soapbox type moment where they told multiple people at once, but it doesn't say that explicitly. Uh, I, I think it was maybe, it could have been more that everyone, it wasn't everyone at once, but everyone that they ran into, one or two people 
uh, at a time. And I, and I bet after a few days, after that initial excitement wore out, that extra bounce in their step kind of wore off, uh, it didn't change what they had experienced. It maybe changed a little bit the way that they shared it, but I'm sure that they still shared what they experienced. And I think for us, we have similar situations. Uh, there will be experiences and moments where, again, it'll come naturally for us to feel like we'll want to jump up and proclaim something from the mountaintop. And that's a good thing. But I think we're more likely to have those opportunities uh, where we share one to one or two people at a time as we run into them. Uh, or we have, we'll probably have even more opportunities to share with people one or two at a time after that initial excitement wears down. And when that happens, I think that's where we oftentimes get hung up on the idea of evangelism. Uh, when we start to lose the excitement of the moment, we start to think about larger crowds. We start to try to disqualify ourselves. I don't, I don't know enough. I don't have the right words. Or you start looking for the exact right opportunity, and it's like, oh, is, is this the No, that's not quite the right opportunity. Uh, and we, we pull ourselves out of the game. Uh, we think about more about what we might say, and we ignore the ways that God wants to use us or is trying to use us. Uh, we and instead, we need to think about what it means to leverage the opportunities that we have, our strengths, our high ground, uh, so to speak. What stands out about us towards relational witness? And I think when we think less about what we're going to say, and we start to think more about who we're in relationship with, and who we are in our actions and words towards others, it begins to move us in this relational direction. So think about it, this relational model when it comes to evangelism. Now, when we think about Jesus, Jesus uh, didn't really stand on street corners on a soapbox, so to speak, and preach at people. Sure, he taught large crowds, but oftentimes, kind of like this morning, the large crowds followed him and were choosing to be there. But so many of the stories that we have of Jesus uh, are Jesus leveraging a relationship uh, that he has with others. He has his group of 12 disciples that journeyed around with them, that he was in close relationship, doing life together. And yes, sometimes he had to teach them the same thing multiple times, uh, which hopefully is a good reminder for us that it doesn't need to be a light switch moment where all of a sudden you're like away from God and all of a sudden like, boom, you're St. Peter. Uh, it doesn't happen like that. And even as we look at Peter's story, it doesn't happen like that for Peter. Uh, we see in Acts, uh, a few books later in the New Testament, how some of the seasoned Christian leaders uh, oftentimes would take younger ones with them, uh, take them under their wing uh, to help teach them uh, and show them the way. I think it goes to show relational equity is something that's built over time, and it's something that's priceless when it comes to our witness. That equity buys us trust uh, to be able to speak openly and honestly with friends. Uh, the time that we spend together allows us to show others what living as a follower of Jesus looks like. It's our, it's our words and our actions tied together. Uh, but you might be thinking, okay, so, but what about all those short encounters that Jesus has, right? And Jesus is Jesus, and we're not Jesus, so what does that mean? Well, I think if we look at these impactful, short encounters, not only in the story of shepherds, uh, but in other places as well, we see how this functions. Uh, we see in John chapter 4, uh, we have the story of the woman at the well, who you wouldn't think would be uh, kind of like the shepherds, uh, based on her social standing, might disqualify her from being 
a big proclaimer of the good news of Jesus. Um, but it was because of her testimony that brought many people in her village to come to know who Jesus was. In many ways, I think it was her lack of social standing that made such a significant impact because her lack of social standing defined the relationship with the community around her. That when she was that excited, people had to figure out what is going on here. I need to know more. We see it uh, a little bit later in the book of Acts. In chapter 16, we have the story of Paul and Silas who are imprisoned. Uh, and we have the story of the earthquake. The prison doors open up. They have a chance to escape, uh, but they end up staying put. Uh, and it puts this relation, unique relationship that they have with the, the, the jailer and Paul and Silas as prisoners, uh, having not escaped, which is what you would think would happen. Uh, but it put that jailer in a unique um, time and place and kind of perspective to be willing and listening, willing and open to listening about what made Paul and Silas different. They leveraged that relationship, unique relationship that they had in that moment to share about Jesus. And the jailer and his entire family came to know the Lord. I think sometimes we overthink it, but stories like this hopefully remind us that evangelism doesn't have to be as complicated as we make it out to be sometimes. It's just sharing how we've experienced God and seeing God at work in our lives and around us. And if you happen to feel like you don't have all the answers, guess what? That's okay. Uh, it's, and it's okay to phone a friend, uh, bring in some extra help. Now, I had a friend uh, from camp growing up. Her name was Marin. We overlapped when I was in seminary. She was finishing up undergrad, stayed in the Chicago area. Uh, and in her first job, she developed a friendship with a young lady named Amanda. Now, Amanda uh, and Marin, as they developed their friendship, Amanda was a self-proclaimed atheist. She didn't, um, she didn't quite get the whole church thing or, or why Marin believed what she did, but she was asking a lot of questions, and Marin was filling me in on the story. And one of the first things that popped into my head was, I don't think Amanda is as atheist as she thinks she is, because uh, she's asking a lot of good questions. Um, but a lot of the questions, like Marin was like, I have no idea how to answer this. Would you be willing to get together with us for coffee? Uh, and so we kind of tag-teamed it up a little bit. We were able to lean on one another, some of the questions that Amanda shared uh, and asked. And we had a great conversation and a great moment. Um, it didn't end with all of a sudden Amanda coming to Jesus, but I think it moved her in the right direction, uh, just one step at a time. Uh, and that's part of the goal of evangelism. I think we don't necessarily need to like win souls all at once. Sometimes we're just called to plant seeds along the way and help people along their journey. Um, so we have this uh, great opportunity to lean into each other. Uh, and as much as we feel like we need to know all the answers, it's okay to not know the answers. It's okay to say, I don't know, but let me talk to somebody and get back to you. And then, of course, we just need to make sure that we follow up. Uh, and you can always phone a friend, like I said. You're not in it alone. And I think that's part of the reason why we see in Acts so many of the of the early Christians, they didn't go out solo. They went out in small groups, or at least in pairs, uh, on their journeys to have that extra support. There's always opportunity, and there's ways that we can approach the process of evangelism that isn't as intimidating as we think it is. And I think some of these things, as we start to unpack it and, and sit on a little bit, some of these things we're probably already doing. But thinking within the context of this Christmas carol, let me ask you this question. What is your mountain? Not like, where are you going to like stand and proclaim uh, from an elevated position? But what is, uh, what's a relational strength that you can leverage towards moving towards, uh, 
moving others towards God. Um, and here's a couple ways, if you're not sure, here's a couple ways that I think that you can do this. First is to think about your community outside of church. Where are your relationships with non-Christians? Uh, odds are, like, we all have relationships here in church that are great and supportive. Odds are we all have relationships outside of church. Some of those people might go to other churches, but odds are in our lives somewhere we already have an existing relationship with somebody uh, who is not as close to God as we are and could use a nudge in the right relationship. And these people, the good news is they aren't strangers. Uh, you have some sort of relational equity and trust built up with them. Uh, and so where can you use that relational trust and equity uh, to leverage some conversations towards God? Not in a, not in a pushy way, but just to, to not be shy when the opportunity arises. The second thing that I think we can do is pray. And like I said, way back at the beginning of this, yes, that's one of the traditional Sunday school answers when kids don't know the other answer and they say pray, but it's true. I think if we pray here, uh, it's, it's always a good thing to do. Uh, and we can be praying about those relationships that God puts on our hearts. Uh, a simple way to start the wheels turning to open doors to further conversation with those people is to ask them, how can I pray for you? Because I know a very few people, uh, whether they're strong in their faith or weaker in their faith or have no faith at all, I know very few people when the rubber meets the road and life gets tough who don't appreciate uh, your thoughts uh, and prayers. Even if they believe that nothing's going to happen, uh, it's a way to open that door to conversations of how you can pray for them. Uh, pray about how you might be like the lighthouse, that light on the high ground. Uh, show, not necessarily in your words, but showing in your actions what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Uh, pray about how you can be the word on the high ground, the way that you talk to and the way that you talk about others. Uh, can go a long way uh, towards um, influencing. It's, it's another way that we put our words into action, that people see uh, how we talk about and treat others uh, in our words, uh, and that we would encourage others the same way that Jesus did. And then pray again as, as you begin to put these things into action, these things into place, because uh, prayer keeps us conscious on our dependence of the Holy Spirit, to be a part of this, that we're not in it alone. We have the Holy Spirit, which we see, in, again, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, where Jesus tells the disciple, you will receive my power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. That's good news. We're not in it alone. Uh, and you will be my witnesses. And that second part, it's as simple as sharing what we've experienced, sharing what we've witnessed, how God has been at work. Sometimes it's specific stories about how God has been at work in our lives. Uh, other times it's inviting them to witness uh, what God is doing in our lives alongside with us. Uh, as simple as offering an invitation to come to church. We're starting a new series next week. You could grab an invite card and use that to kind of open the door. You could say, hey, we're doing this new thing at church. I'm learning about this. I would love it if you would come and learn about it with, uh, with me, alongside me. Um, or if you're, if you're a bit more introverted than that, you could always take the graphic and post it on social media as an encouragement there. Who knows who you might reach there. I think when, when we take this approach to evangelism, when we, when we get away from our gut reaction of the uncomfortability of the soapbox and yelling or preaching at anybody who will come and listen and think about who do we already have relationship with? Who do we already have some of that equity and trust built up with that we can leverage uh, towards opening the door to kind of direct them towards God. Not necessarily all at once, but just one degree at a time. 
I think when we start to make that shift, the idea of evangelism becomes less intimidating. It becomes less uncomfortable. It's, it's, it's not about making us feel uncomfortable and exposed. Remember, the, the city on a hill wasn't just for visibility, but it was a defensive position and a position of safety. Where do we already feel comfortable in relationships, and how can we leverage that uh, towards pointing people towards God? Uh, and as we think about that, it's about being prayerful as those opportunities arise. Uh, and those opportunities will arise for all of us. So let's pray. Uh, Lord, we thank you for just the opportunity to revisit Christmas carols in a new light. Uh, we thank you for the way that they can uh, teach us about uh, the Christmas story in new and different ways. They can help us remember the Christmas story uh, in uh, exciting ways. Uh, we thank you for uh, all the messages in the series, and we think about the, the good news of the coming of your Son. Uh, and while it can be intimidating to think about sharing from a soapbox, I pray that um, you would put it on our hearts to be mindful of uh, those couple people in our lives um, who maybe need to move a step or two closer to you and how we might uh, leverage the relationship and the trust that we already have built with them uh, to share how we've experienced you in our lives, how we've seen you at work in our lives, uh, maybe how we've seen you at work around their lives that they maybe haven't seen yet, uh, that we can help um, turn up our evangelism dial, maybe just a degree or two, uh, by leveraging some of the things that you already have in place in our lives. Uh, help us to open our eyes to see those opportunities uh, and to take advantage of them uh, as they arrive with your help. In your name we pray. Amen. <laughs>